Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Carrie Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. We talk about it all the time on this show. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. This is going to be a short intro to this late episode because I did my taxes yesterday and it was really quite taxing. I just don't have the spoons to really make words happen right now. In this week's episode, I talked to Nikki about qualifying and listing for a double lung transplant due to her rare disease, LAM, which even I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the long name of because it is a real doozy. But of course, I've linked to more information about it in the show notes. Her longer origin story about living with LAM and her other rare disease, tuberous sclerosis, will be part of a future episode. This one is mostly about the transplant stuff and discussion about the the healthcare system with Nikki's insider perspective. She actually used to work on the inside of health insurance and has a unique perspective on what the future holds for our healthcare system. You can check out Nikki's blog at ilivebreathe.com and find her on Twitter at Nikki Seesfeld. Find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. If you can, take a few moments to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, which helps other people find the show. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I really started thinking, maybe it is time for me to do more. They had a few internal openings and I thought, oh, what the hell? I'm, I'm going to go for it. And I actually ended up getting an internal promotion, which was great. And it was great to be, you know, recognized. And I was in transition with that and I was actually doing pretty well, starting to get more familiar with more of the inside, like how plans are run, what the renewal process for different employer insurance plans are, things like that. Like a really kind of technical, but interesting in and of themselves. And then I got sick. Um, I started noticing in March and I noticed like after I went to this conference to kind of catch up on the latest and greatest, I was short of breath and I was like, well, I had been losing weight because I knew, you know, sitting on a phone for eight hours a day hadn't done me any favors. So I was, you know, definitely trying to get more in shape and also using like a Fitbit just to be more mindful of what I was putting in my body and making better choices. And I dropped like 12 pounds that way before I had even, you know, did the exercise component just by being a little bit, you know, more conscious, which was great for me. And usually that was enough to rebound my breathing. I tried not to get over a certain weight because I noticed that, you know, my breathing would get worse if I was over. So I dropped all that. but it didn't get better this time. And so I was due for an appointment anyway. And I talked to my pulmonologist ahead of time. And I said, well, why don't we do a six minute walk? I think uh, it's been a couple years. I don't think I've had one since I've been to New York here. Um, but I said, I've noticed, you know, the last few times I've exercised, I've wound up with a really bad headache afterwards. You know, this is like 15, 20 minutes. It's not, you know, you're not running a marathon. Yeah. So she said, well, I think that's a good idea. Well, I failed that that six minute walk, I think I kind of freaked the tech out too. Because <laughs> normally to qualify at the end of six minutes, you have to be at 88. I started out at like 93, 94, I think. Uh, after three minutes, I went down to 81 and didn't rebound until even after six, I was at like 84, 85. And I mean, the, you know, the techs are so used to seeing all these people that are just kind of like borderline or having to, you know, fight for coverage or whatever. I think she was kind of like astonished. And I mean, she, she kept asking me if I'm okay. Am I okay? And I'm like, oh, I'm just short of breath like all the time. And, it, you know, by that time, 
they had told me I was kind of like um, low end moderate to start as severe, which, you know, severe is kind of like your 40% threshold. I was still above that, but I mean, I was definitely having daily, you know, shortness of breath, like, especially if you, you know, talk to me for a while, wouldn't be immediately obvious, but you could tell after a while, or if I was lifting heavy things, stuff like that, you know, so I definitely needed oxygen. And I was like, well, this is just for exercise, it's probably no big deal. And yes, I'll have to kind of monitor and make sure I'm not going too low with other things, but I didn't really think that much of it, but I said, well, let me go down to the University of Pennsylvania and check in with my team because my pulmonologist that I had up until like this last, a little bit over like a year, I think he's been gone now. He moved to Florida, kind of 2010 or 2011, sometime in there. He says, I just want you to go down there. I want you to check in with them. I want you to just talk. And get the the facts about transplant. He says, I know you're way too healthy to be tested. But he says, I've seen too many people with, you know, cystic fibrosis and other diseases, especially young people, be too afraid to have these conversations Mm -hmm. when they need to have them and be intimidated by the process. And he said that, you know, I would just feel more comfortable. At least you're getting some basic information. I don't think it'll hurt. And at first I was kind of like, well, I don't even feel sick. So it's probably pointless, but on the same token, given the fact that I am under 50%, there is a, you know, a possibility that transplant might be in the cards at some point. So sure. Okay. I don't see the harm in going down there. And I met with the doctor who's my pulmonologist to this day. And, you know, I love him. It was very grim and a very hard conversation, of course. And he told me I was way too healthy which at the time, you know, I was glad for, especially after I got the statistics. But, you know, in a couple years after I failed that walk, then I was like, man, I need to go down there and I need to check in because they need to know that I'm on oxygen now. And I kept thinking, it's stupid oxygen, like big deal. Mm -hmm. Not going to amount to anything. Probably still too healthy to be tested, but they need to see me. So I went down there and this was a couple of days before my birthday last year. And he told me, he said, well, your numbers definitely qualify you for an evaluation. And since, you know, you have started oxygen, I think it would be a good idea for you to at least start getting tested. And I thought, "Mm, I'm still not feeling sick, but okay. I had seen enough women with lamb over time, both best and worst cases, as far as transplants go, that I had a more balanced view if you would have asked me back in say 2009 if I would have needed something then I wouldn't have done it and here's why there were many women who I knew that went in for the transplant but then never made it out of the hospital of the few that I did know that made it out One of them died of leukemia a year or two after their transplant. I was devastated by that because I had met this woman at a conference and she was just beautiful and she was just telling me how transplanting changed her life, like how things were so much better and easier and how she was, you know, really had a second lease on life after, Mm -hmm. you know, what she had been through at the hands of this disease. And so I felt that that was wholly unfair. There was another woman who I know just around the time that I was diagnosed, who I never met in person, but had kind of corresponded with, who was around my age at the time. I was 26 when I was diagnosed. She had a living low bar transplant. I think she had family members um, that did it. She got a blood clot the second, like the day after surgery, and she died. And I just thought, why do people go through this? And it's, you know, they don't even make it out. Yeah. Like, This is just, you know, I can't imagine. Well, in 2009, then I started meeting some other women who were my age and younger, um, but who actually had successful transplants. And um, probably the biggest example now, she's like 10 years out, was Justine LeMond, and she lives in like the UK. And she is an absolute freaking hero because she's done things that 
most even most people would never dream of doing like she sailed the world wow. like a year or two after her transplant in a competitive sailing race that's amazing and then yeah, and then she's like climbed like um everest i think or Holy shit. something like that and she made it up like 800 feet or some shit like that like that's she couldn't wild. make it all the way top but i mean damn yeah you know and then she you know she dances burlesque she talks a lot about organ donation and stuff like that and this is a girl who like literally was inches from death when she got the call over in, in the UK, I mean, she had had like, I don't know, God, at least probably at least double the amount of lung collapses I had had over the course of my diagnosis and was on like a ventilator before she had her transplant. And look at her now, like she is just amazing. And she's amazingly supportive for every woman she meets with lamb and for every woman that she meets with, you know, a double lungy. So I mean, I saw that, but then I started meeting other women who were in the States, um, a couple of them in Iowa, other people that I've met in Lamposium a few years back, that Lamb conference, um, who to this day are still my mentors and still help me through this process a lot, who, you know, did have successful outcomes, who are married, have families, you know, so it was very rough for them you know, even at that age to be, you know, that sick that quickly and everything. It's not a cure, but they definitely have a much better life mm -hmm. than what they had. And I mean, they're living outside of that average five years or whatever that they give. So, you know, that gave me a more balanced perspective. And so, you know, I have realistic expectations. Um, and then I met a few people over the course of my stay, because um, there's a couple of transplant houses in Philadelphia, luckily. Um, so when I go there, you know, I, I don't have to go back the same day if I don't, if I don't feel up to it or don't want to. Um, and so my friend and I stayed down at the gift of life house for when I was evaluated and I met a few other people, um, who've helped me a lot and have actually had, you know, some problems, but then also wound up really well. And then I've met a few more people in my area just from, the different articles and stuff that have kind of run on me and uh, you know those people have reached out to me and shared their stories and so there's a lot more hope um, but there's also you know I'm fortunate that I've been kind of one to kind of watch and learn from everybody else as I go mm -hmm. uh, so I don't have any you know false expectations about like what this is going to do it's not going to cure me but definitely it's going to be easier than living with, you know, less than 30% of my lungs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I decided, well, I told them, I said, I would rather wait till like August. Cause I, I said, I have my summer mapped out. I haven't been home in a while and I know I'm not going to get much time, but I plan to go home over the 4th of July weekend. I said, I would like to at least, you know, do this and do that. And get a little bit of R&R &R time in before I have all these tests. And he didn't seem to think that that was a problem when I talked to my transplant doctor. Um, but I told him, I said, look, I'm not, you know, going to put it off indefinitely. He says, no, but those are, those are good reasons, you know, for putting it off a little. He's always been the type that's just very supportive and always trying to recognize, too, that his patients have a life outside of what they're dealing with and trying to encourage them to live that. So I was doing okay, and I was kind of hemming and hawing because I knew I would have to set aside time for the evaluation, and I didn't know what to say to anyone at work about it. If I should tell them that I just needed the time, if I should say anything, whatever. I talked to my outgoing manager about it and I just said, I just feel like I want to tell someone just in the event, you know, something happens or I get sick, you know, and I have to be out. People realize that it's something serious. And, you know, I, I played off the oxygen a little bit and I told them, I said, you know, it is, but I was honest about it. I said, it is getting on towards summertime. And I said, you know, the humidity I notice always affects me. So I said, if I come in wearing this, you know, I don't want anyone freaking out. It's no big deal. You know, my doctor just said, it's time for me to have this. And they were all like pretty cool about it. And it, and they know, you know, I'm a hard worker. I kind of put my nose to the grind and I don't complain a lot or say much of anything. And I don't do a lot of chit chatting or whatever. So they were okay, which was kind of reassuring to me because I, I never know how people at work are going to react to a change like that. I, I don't obsess over it, but I mean, obviously it goes through your head kind of like, are they going to treat you any different right. with this? 
Well, I was the fourth of July came and went, and I I went back because it was my twentieth high school reunion by then, <laughs> and there was quite a few of my classmates back, which was cool. And then my family usually has a nice big family reunion out at one of the lakes uh, on the fourth of July. And so I had had my portable concentrator by that time, and I definitely needed it for flying, and I needed it for walking around and everything. Um, I didn't really need it the day of the reunion, which was good. Uh, I kept it with me just in case. Um, and I got to see a lot of people I hadn't seen in years, and so that was really cool. Um, but then I had to, you know, tell my cousin about what was going on. And I knew that was a little bit hard for him, I think. Um, cause he, you know, he had known kind of bits and pieces here and there, but you know, he'd always kind of seen me come through the worst of it. It was hard for me to tell my family because, um, I have a lot of cousins who are around my same age mm-hmm. on like my dad's side that I grew up with. So they're like brothers and sisters to me and they have children who are younger, I was just like, I have to tell them what's going on, but I, hopefully I won't freak out, you know, their kids too much, but at least maybe I should tell them. So just in case they see me out at the lake or whatever, they're not gonna, you know, their kids aren't going to be scared by it. And I might have a chance to talk to them or mention it, you know, no big deal. Cause it was definitely a change. Even the, the ones that are like school age, you know, from when they saw me and I ended up um, that day needing it for about half a day because I just wasn't I wasn't staying up and so that was a little a little hard but you know my family has always been very supportive and my cousins have been very supportive of me and I'm lucky in that regard that I have the friends that I have but then I also have the family that I have I've never been you know like some people you know blamed or told to buck up or any of this other kind of like nonsense that sometimes families put on people who are chronically ill, you know? Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very fortunate in that regard. So, you know, I went back and then a couple of weeks went by and I'm at work and all of a sudden I start to feel short of breath. And I thought, well, it is mid July. Maybe it's just the humidity. So I put on a concentrator, I put it on too. And I'm not going up, and I check in another 15 minutes, and still not going up, so I bump it up to three. And by this time, I, I checked again in another 10 minutes or something, and I was down in, like, 79 or something like that. And then I freaked out, because I'm like, that is way too low. And this thing only goes up to four. Like, I'm going to bump it up to four, but what if it's not enough to get me to rebound? And so I pulled my supervisor aside and I said, look, I don't want to freak anyone out. But I said, my oxygen levels are really screwy. I do need to go and leave and get this checked, but I don't know where to go around here. Um, Because I worked like an hour and a half from my house at the time. So I was, you know, kind of far away. I said, do you know around here, you know, where I can go? And I said, I don't, would you mind driving me? Because when I'm this low, I get really scared. I don't want to, you know, pass out on a highway or something out there. I don't think it's safe for me to drive. And she says, definitely not. And she's like, do you want to call an ambulance? And my first thought is, oh, this fucking embarrassing. But then I said, well, how far is it? And she says, well, it's probably a half an hour, 45 minutes. And I said, well, I don't really want to, but yeah, maybe we should call an ambulance because we had actually headed out the door uh, as we were deciding. I said, because what if I need more oxygen? At least I can get more oxygen in the ambulance. I said, I don't want to pass out in your backseat or anything or freak you out either. Plus, I said, it's probably getting faster if they take me in the ambulance anyway. So they had to take me there, and they took me to, like, Doylestown, which is, like, halfway between Philadelphia and halfway home, because they couldn't take me either place. It was too far. So I wind up in this strange ER, you know, with all this stuff. And I said, I don't know what's going on, but I just can't seem to get my oxygen level straightened out. And then, you know, they had finally gotten me stabilized. Um, I said, well, I do have a history of lung collapses. And I said, well, the x-ray doesn't doesn't show that and said well sometimes these small collapses don't show up on an x-ray I said in fact I had my pulmonologist the last appointment I was at in May found an unresolved like really tiny area where my pleurodesis had pulled away and I was I had a really small lung collapse there 
I said that it was only when he rotated the view on the CT that anyone could even pick it up. I said, so I want another CT just to rule it out completely. He says, well, you know, the radiation, blah, blah, blah. I said, I understand you're doing your job. I said, but I would take my chances with the excess radiation for my peace of mind. I am not leaving here until I know for certain that I do not have a lung collapse or there's not something that I need to, you know, that I'm going to have to get wind up at my home ER in like six hours because it got missed here. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. So, you know, they didn't find anything and they sent me home. And they refused to call Ken for whatever reason. So I ended up just calling and I said, well, you know, sometimes this happens. And, and the one nurse practitioner was kind of giving me hell. He's like, you know, you're in end stage lung disease. You really shouldn't be driving. <laughs> and I was just like, at that point, I was just like, you know what? But nobody ever told me that I couldn't. Yeah. You know, so by this time, like now, of course, now I know that I shouldn't be driving long distances, but it wasn't, I was never told this before. So, you know, I'm not going to stop my life if I'm feeling okay. Um, you know, and then he kind of backed off a minute and he says, no, yeah, you're right. I understand. And so he says, it looks like everything's fine. If they're saying the CT is clear, you know, go home. And if you have another problem, I guess you go back they find what they find or whatever, or give us a call. So that was frustrating because I was at least used to this other stuff for it to be a problem and you just go in and fix it, right? It was really concerning for me to like have this breathing issue and, and not know like what the hell caused it. Um, but my friends were really good. They came up, they got my car, uh, swung around, got me, went home. Um, and then, you know, they basically told me, don't work, don't go back to work until after the evaluation. And I was just like, yeah, I kind of figured you were going to say that. So then I just decided, um, because I kind of figured in my mind that this was going to lead down some path, I just had foresight. I decided to go ahead and start the process to file um, Social Security Disability just because I knew there was a waiting period for that or whatever. And so I did that. And then I had my evaluation in August. And then they told me, you're definitely going to need new lungs. And I was actually going to list much sooner than what I just listed, except in October, I was on my way over to exercise at my community center and some jerk comes down the hill at an insanely high rate of speed. I see his tires cross the yellow line. I pull over. I'm completely pulled off the road. And he still hits me head on on my driver's side. Oh, God. And I took all of that impact to my chest. Oh. All and I thought, oh, this asshole. Is he going to screw everything up for me? Like, it's, it's not enough that I had all of this shit happen since yeah. May. And I can't, you know, now I can't work. Now I can't, you know, I have to think about transplant. You know, this is not something I need right now. Yeah. I got really paranoid because I had left my cell phone on my bed. And as I was trying to reach to call, you know, first reaction ambulance would then call my friends to say that I was okay. Boom. <laughs> no phone. Mm-mm. And I was, I was hurt too badly for them to take me to the local hospital I normally go to for treatment. I had to go to the same hospital system, but a different campus over in Bethlehem. Um, I wound up with uh, a broken rib. Luckily, it was it was at the top, like near my neck and not near my lungs, which I was deathly afraid of as I took all that impact. I'm like, it better not collapse a lung because I don't know how the hell they're going to fix it if I break a rib in the wrong place. Um, plus, I had inhaled all the airbag dust and... Because of my reduced lung function, I couldn't cough it out. Oh, yeah. And so that gave me aspiration pneumonia. Um, so I spent four days in the trauma campus for them to kick me out too early. Um, and then to have to go back that same night, that at least I could go back to that normal ER. Spent a week there in that hospital. And then by that time, I, of course, was so weak that I needed pulmonary rehab. At least my insurance approved that. But it was different than in New York where they have, like, the, the kind of inpatient rehab wings of the hospitals. 
here they have them like attached to the nursing home and stuff. And so I had to spend like a week and a half, five full days and then parts of weekends in a nursing home getting pulmonary rehab. Mm. And luckily I healed up pretty well. Um, But that's when I realized how sick I was. Because I was like, this rehab is like worse than any rehab for my lung collapses. And I am no wuss. Um, I just was like, I know there's, you know, it hit my brain. There's like no way possible, even if there was another drug or whatever. There's just nothing that's going to turn this around. I have to have this transplant. And so that, you know, was a period of adjustment, too, for the the full reality to kind of sink in but I recovered um and then we're nearing the holidays so they decided it'd be in my best interest to wait till after the holidays and get a little time in between hospitalizations so I was supposed to list probably in like January or February and then we had a snowstorm hit in January where we got 36 inches of snow and we still weren't dug out so I rescheduled and that pushed me back a month so now finally as of March 1st, I'm listed. And that's the, you know, full gamut of all the freaking health <laughs> junk at the hand of my, you know, hands of my rare, two rare diseases. I mean, tuberous sclerosis affects maybe one in 6,000 people. And then I think um, the actual U.S. count of women with LAM, um, even if they don't have tuberous sclerosis with it, because um, sometimes it just happens that women um, get it, what they call sporadic cases, is like, I think, at most, maybe 250,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might even be the worldwide uh, instance. So, I mean, very, very rare um, diseases. But luckily, I'm in places where there's, you know, good treatments with people who see a fair majority of it. Um, and so that has helped me because I, I don't think I would be where I am, um, you know, without those, those resources. Yeah, for so. sure. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I'm not even 40 yet. I'll be like 39 in May. So, you know, this is sometimes hitting me at an age where it's, you know, I I know younger transplant patients too, but I mean, still, you know, this is not, at least I'm not having to worry about age criteria either. Like I know, you know, some um, other transplant patients, if they have like, say, um, pulmonary fibrosis or scleroderma or some of these other diseases, like they do tend to be a little bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have to kind of wonder if they're too old to get transplanted or nearing that age. At least that's, you know, to my advantage, too, that I'm, I'm a little bit younger, which might also help me be a little bit more resilient and recover a little quicker. Right. Once you get the transplant, you'll be on, like, anti-rejection medication oh, yeah. and stuff like they that forever. Me, yeah, they sent me, like, a list. And I'm on, like, 8 to 10 drugs now um, because I also have asthma in addition to my lamb. Like, when they do my lung function testing, like, after they give me a shot of albuterol, like, I, I, I do, like, 30% better or something oh, wow. like that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I often wonder, as a kid and stuff, when I, when I was in junior high and stuff, I would, I would get really winded if I would try to run or do track and stuff. And I always chalked it up to being a little bit pudgy at that age, but I kind of wondered if maybe I had a little bit of exercise-induced asthma that yeah. wasn't up on, you know, because I never really complained about it. Um, so yeah, you know, I'll trade some of the drugs that I'm on now for others, but I'll probably, at least for the first year, I'll be on 20, probably different meds, um, anti-rejection, anti-viral, anti-fungal, I think, um, just because you're so susceptible in that first year to even just acute rejection, like mm-hmm. because of the newness of the surgery and, and getting time to adjust to the donor lungs and everything, they hit you with a lot more medications within the first year. And then they try to, to pull you off some of them and see how you do. Um, if you do really well, then, you know, you're still probably going to have at least probably eight to 10 
that you're on for life, you know, even in the best case scenario. So yeah, the the drugs are a big, big part of it. And of course, that is, you know, primarily to ward off the rejection. But it's also sometimes to if you have antibodies in your body, that make you susceptible to certain viruses and stuff. That's why they, they treat you with some antivirals and stuff to start with. Yeah. Because I, I keep seeing these headlines about um, how they're getting ready to start doing or, or at least start testing transplants between HIV patients and hepatitis right. patients. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, and there's it's interesting that you should say that too because they also consider those types of donors and a few others like high risk mm-hmm. um you know there's there they are considering other donors now that they they didn't used to but i mean the high risk donors now like men who have had sex with men within the last five years and it's not because of a homosexual lifestyle it's because you know there's certain illnesses that they might be privy to sexually transmitted or otherwise that you as a you know recipient wouldn't normally be exposed to mm-hmm. Same with, you know, prisoners, like that could mean any number of things, somebody in prison for drugs, or it could be, you know, somebody writing a bad check, right? But there's institutional bugs and different things that you could be exposed to in a prison environment that you wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. So they consider that high risk. Um, Drug use. You know, and you can have somebody who's who who is a drug addict, but still gets tested regularly and takes, you know, is a functional addict and takes decent care of themselves. Um, you do hear about this a lot more with like the heroin epidemics and some of the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so those organs don't go to waste, but there's always the chance because, especially if they use IV drugs, there's higher risks for you know those types of infections that you normally wouldn't be exposed to. So all of this, you know, they kind of, I actually have a meeting next week I have to go down for, but they explain all the different high-risk organs and have you sign consents. And it's pretty interesting. If you get calls for those because you agree to be called, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to accept uh, that organ if you're uncomfortable with the backstory they give you behind it. Um, you won't lose your place on the list. You don't have to accept um, if you're not comfortable, but they will tell you um, simply because you will be, um, you could be at risk for hepatitis or different things. They may test for them, but, you know, still. Right. There's absolutely no, you know, guarantee. Um, the risk is negligible and it definitely beats, you know, waiting additional months um, for an organ and getting progressively worse so it's always a risk benefit thing but that that's what they leave to you um as a decision are you comfortable with that if not that's fine but then you're not going to lose your place but then that means you know it might be another couple months before you get another call um so you know that is something that a lot of people don't realize either and I didn't realize until I got pretty deep in the process just the you know classic different classifications of donors and just how many things that they actually test for and test you for um you know as far as blood work and stuff and and antibodies and everything they try to give you the best shot out of the gate with this to head off any potential problems as they can and 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 lungs they not only try to match you as far as blood type they try to match you relative size relative age if they can you know different things so you know they're giving you the most compatible that hopefully you can get to give you you know a better shot yeah because it's a pretty uphill battle already right mm-hmm Interesting. And it's funny, smokers are not considered high risk. So you what? <laughs> smokers, makes no sense. Yeah. So you can have someone who smokes even socially or even up to a certain percentage and you know, they can still donate organs. I think because they have the advances now, like those uh ex vivo machines. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certain serums in some of those machines that they can rehabilitate the lungs. So they can clean up all that damage and make them viable, whereas, like, a couple years ago, they couldn't. Like, even sometimes now they're starting to 
actually get organs from people who have drowned. They were too afraid to do that before because there was no way to clear out like the water damage and stuff. And they were worried about, you know, illnesses being transmitted that way and stuff like that. But now they can actually dry those lungs out and test them and make sure that they're up to function before they can go in. And that's a good thing because not only does it keep those organs preserved longer than, than old methods, but yeah, it gives them more of a chance to test to make sure that, you know, nothing's going to immediately fail. So they've made actually huge leaps in transplants. I mean, that has been the most fascinating thing about my blog is just looking at some of the advances they've made just in the field of transplantation in the last five or six years. It's in, it's incredible. So, yeah. wow, that's wild. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it's been a learning curve for me, but I, you know, it's, it's a very fascinating, um, field to begin with. Um, even though it is pretty scary. Cause I mean, once you're, you're kind of at the line where you're considered for transplant, you have about three years or less left on your, on your existing, uh, organs, whichever that is. And they say three years average, cause it really depends on, you know, what stage you're at in evaluation. I mean, obviously the earlier you get evaluated, the better shot that you have, cause maybe they'll find something before you get, you know, last legs of something, but and that's that's another reason why I was kind of glad that I went through the process as early as I did. Um, right. So because, you didn't wait too long. Till right. Kind because of too if late. I would have started it now, I mean, with the pain and some of the stuff that I get on a daily basis, and then um, my oxygen needs now, like it would have been that much tougher. So, you know, now with the anti-rejection medications, Mm -hmm. those are, those are pretty rough on your kidneys as it is, right? So (laughs) given that you have like a pre-existing kidney problem, Mm -hmm. how how does that factor in? Well, see, and that's, that was the one concern they had back five or six years ago when, when I had that first discussion, they weren't sure if I would qualify because of the shape my kidneys are in. Uh, Thankfully, because of the drug I took, they're in good shape. Um, but I still have stage one, um, kidney disease and I still have to be careful. Um, there's still, you know, blood pressure medicines and stuff that I have to take. There's the worst case scenario. Uh, if they're too hard, I might be looking at it at a kidney transplant. I'll cross that bridge when it comes to yeah. it, but it's, you know, I have to, I'm always one to plan for best and worst case at the same time. So I'm mm-hmm. never hopefully blindsided, but to me, since kidney transplants have such a high degree of success um, and you have living donors and you have swaps and you have cadaverific uh, kidneys, like that seems less daunting to me yeah. than, than a lung transplant. I'm just hoping though that, that it, I get like a year or two like in between before something like that would happen. Um, you know, but we'll see. I mean, the other thing that people don't realize is, some of these drugs, they'll push your, push your levels out of whack, um, like with your glucose. Um, so there's a, a certain percentage of transplant patients um, who weren't diabetic before or may not have been at a risk for diabetes that sometimes do develop uh, diabetes after transplant um, because of the drugs too. Right. Um, so, you know... It's definitely not a cure. Uh, it's an extension and it's a treatment. Um, but there are trade-offs you make. Um, and obviously, you know, how how well your kidneys function after that really does depend on, on the levels of drugs and, and how much you need or how you adjust. Um, and then other women I know too sometimes have... Um, a lot of problems um, with their GI tracts after transplant, like their GERD flares up mm. or um, it gets so severe that they need uh, like a feeding tube because they can't maintain proper nutrition or they need the potentially need that gastric surgery. There's like the Nissen surgery, you know, they go in and they um, fix that with your stomach and stuff. Mm. So, you know, 
that's the other thing. Like the center criteria really varies. And I, I'm lucky that I'm at the center that I'm at with Penn because there's, if I was at another center because of the problems that I have with my kidneys or the problems that even just having GERD, I might not be able to list at other places. So, you know, that's an interesting thing too. Um, and sometimes that also drives people to get second opinions because they might be rejected at one center for a certain thing. It used to be back in the day, if, if I had these, had my lungs tapped, like I did, you know, mechanically glued to my chest wall, mm-hmm. that was an automatic exclusion. Like no, there was no way that transplant would take place. Uh, luckily that's changed. Um, cause there was a lot of women too, who I think back in the day, um, got disqualified from transplants that could have done really well with them with my disease simply because they had that intervention done to try to stop their lung collapses. Um, so, you know, it's always important too if, if you get a no at one center to, to try to get at least one more opinion, even though the testing is hard and it's a lot and, you know, it can be fairly expensive. Um, sometimes if, you have, if I got into a really bad bind where they told me I had to wait like two years or something, it's possible that since I'd already been evaluated at Penn, then I could go to New York, um, Columbia, and maybe they would evaluate me and see. And then if they accepted me, then I could list at both places because they're in two different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that might mean if the list is shorter at one place or the other, I might get a call quicker um but then that would be the potential for me to be you know at two different centers instead of one not everybody gets that opportunity or wants it and luckily i'm not one to be in a position to need it but i also know that that's a consideration for some people too um but then that's also kind of dependent on you know if you can afford to relocate um for a time or if you have friends or if you have ways because uh, most of the time, too, if you go active, you have to be within two hours uh, of your center. Mm. Um, so, you know, your centers have to be within, like, a two-hour radius of where you're at. Right, some at any moment, you could get that call. Right. And some people don't have the option of having two centers in that in that radius. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are places like um, services like Angel Flight or Wings of Hope or something that will you know, fly you certain places, but you also have to be within a certain radius for them um, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And then that's not, you know, commercial flights. That's like prop planes, which still take, you know, a fair amount of time too. Right. So there are sources for people, you know, if they, if they want to do a list um, to kind of cut back on, on some of that expense um, with those types of things. But, you know, it's this whole thing sounds very stressful <laughs> it it is inherently stressful i mean as but it's not all bad uh you know um i well, think yeah, I, I mean the fact that we can take organs out of one body and put them into right. another like that's kind of a miracle <laughs> mm-hmm. well and i mean just you know it's a joke people will tell you tell you oh you're gonna change you know, as a result of this process. And I never knew what those women meant when they were saying that. But I found out over time because the sicker I've gotten, the, and I, I've always been in tune with my body, but I do tend to listen a lot more Yeah, uh, and be less stubborn than what I used to. And it used to be easier. I mean, I used to get mad at my lungs if I couldn't exercise or I couldn't do certain things. Um, I would get angry and I get frustrated, but then I realized too, that, you know, the part of this is, is the disease. Like my lungs are fighting back the best they can. So, you know, I tend to cut them a lot more slack and I tend to, to be a lot easier on them, you know, now, um, than I was before, which I think in, in the end is probably healthier because sometimes I would, I would push myself to do things that I shouldn't have been doing. And, and, you know, maybe, um, you know, that whole disability process like sucks and it's hard and it's very hard to fill out those forms and kind of 
paint the worst case scenario and air all your dirty laundry of, you know, everything that has dragged you down and like why you can't work, um, or what you struggled to hold on to your job and lived with that you didn't even realize that you were carrying around. Um, but it hasn't been the worst thing in the world for me either to have other interests. Um, you know, I can't do improv anymore. Um, as actively as I used to, because the concentrator I have, it's like, I can't carry it on my back. So it's harder for me to be active, mm-hmm. but I have my blog, I have social media, where I get plenty of interaction. I can talk to, you know, other people. Um, and so the people in my improv community, if I'm doing puppets, I went to like a puppet workshop a couple weeks ago and they folded me in and included me. I mean, I didn't even have to ask for any accommodation or make any stink they just naturally um worked with me so you know like that kind of thing it's it's nice when it happens natural and organic like that um so it still gives you a sense that you know there's still things about you that are you yeah and i that was something i missed out on for a long time because i felt like my only the only the most important thing was to keep working, keep working, keep mm-hmm. working. And I didn't have energy for any of that other stuff. And so yeah. I suffered a lot in my personal relationships and in my hobbies and stuff because, you know, I wouldn't make time for it because I'd be too, too exhausted just trying to get through the day. Yeah, and now I think that's I, really least, common. Yeah, I think at least now, I mean, I thought, oh, God, it was going to be so hard being out of work, but I'm finding plenty of things to occupy myself with, you know, and, and keep engaged and keep sharp. So, you know, I probably have like another year or so, um, they recommend usually that you don't work that first year or so until, you know, you're, you know, stable enough and out of the woods enough. Um, but now I have, you know, some different ideas and different things. I might want to take things in a new direction after, after I can go back to work once I get cleared, you know, which is something that might not have come to mind if I hadn't gone through this. So I'm not saying that like, I'm happy about it, but you know, there were definite like things that good stuff that came out of it in spite of it being kind of scary and dark and somewhat hard to navigate at times. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, you know, as great as it can be. Um, One question I do have. So like, let's say you get your lungs, everything goes well, that you you make it past that first year. So you're like mostly out of the woods. Is it possible for the lamb to like infiltrate those new lungs or are like, are you, do you not have to worry about that anymore? It is possible. It's happened in a few cases. Um, It's not that common, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's also one of the drugs that I had to go off um, that I took in 2009, you know, isn't approved to treatment for lamb. It also shows that once, you know, you're healed from lung transplant, it's safe to go back on and that it might actually also potentially ward off rejection. So I might be spared some of that fate um, by being able to go back on that drug after I'm healed, in which case, I mean, even if it would come back, it would probably come back slower. Right. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there was one case that I know of a girl who got transplanted and then two years later it came back and it, it hit hard. Um, but that is an extremely rare case, but yet, you know, that's always in our view. Right. Because you never know what's going to happen with some of these rare diseases, especially when it's like a, you know, has a genetic component. Right. There's no playbook for it. Right. So, yeah. But maybe in another, you know, six to 10 years, you know, they're already growing ears as far as like bioprinting and and stuff like that. Maybe they'll, they'll be far enough along with other organs that, you know, synthetic kidneys and lungs and who knows and um, yeah yeah it's pretty the, crazy to think about like I was just yeah. how much has changed <laughs> in such a short time and then right. think about you know going forward things will happen even faster right and then you know you wouldn't have to necessarily worry about 
you know, all those drugs with that because you just grow your own, Yeah. you know, so then there wouldn't be the potential for rejection. And man, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? In fact, um, there's something ex- really extremely experimental that they've been trying in kidney transplant that I'm really hoping pans out because it, it's just, it's like, wow. So they take, you know, the, uh, the organ from the, um, I think they're doing it with living donors now along with some of the stem cells. And then they do essentially a double transplant, the stem cells at the same time as the kidney. And that trains the body to not reject the organ. So then you can be on less immunosuppressant drugs and potentially be weaned off, which would be incredible advance. Yeah. So you know, I know sometimes too, the lungs are trickier because, you know, they're not encased like the kidneys. Um, their viability is shorter because there's so much tie in with the respiratory and circulatory systems. There's a lot more potential for infections and stuff. So, you know, it is one of the trickier organs to transplant. And that's why they're not quite as far along with it as they are with, um, other organs, but the potential, Yeah, I mean, just for like, you know, half of the, the you know, transplantees to be able to get off of those drugs is amazing to think about. So, you know, they're definitely like very encouraging advances and, and different moves that they're making that are going to be kind of revolutionary for the field as a whole, that even if they don't necessarily apply to the organ right now, um, that, you know, I'm potentially receiving I get excited for other people just because I know it's such a, you know, crazy journey to begin with. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question. This mm-hmm. is the new question that I'm asking everyone. Uh, is the American healthcare system as fundamentally unsustainable and irreparable as I've come to think it is? <laughs> God, I'm so torn, you know, because a lot of these problems I saw yeah. way before the Affordable Care Act, because I got suckered into one of those uh, health savings account plans. Mm-hmm. And it was the absolute worst experience ever. But I learned so much from it. You know, but talk about sticker shock for drugs, sticker shock of services, all of that. It's just so hard because I think a lot of this really depends on how they're going to handle the existing bureaucracy of the insurance system. Yes. And you're also looking at, you know, if they, you look at it the way that they set up defense with the subcontracting and some of mm-hmm. that even, like, you know, and I understand what Bernie Sanders is saying when he's saying Medicare for all. I'm not necessarily super opposed to that system except for Medicare kind of sucks. <laughs> right. Like, it's not great to begin with. Right. But here's here's the thing. Like, you know, that also drives a lot of the insurance company decisions. So, like, part of the whole problem, regardless of who, whether it's Aetna, whether it's an affiliate of Aetna's, whether it's, like, an employer, whatever, the whole problem is uh, the uh, underwriting process. You know, everybody thought that everything was going to get fixed once they cleared out pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. But they find other ways to penalize people with chronic illness. And this this is something I did not see until I saw, you know, what goes into an employer plan, how much stress they put employers under um, for the premiums. Now, in the market that I worked in, like, it was transparent. So, you know, for the, the premium, the employers knew exactly what they were getting, blah, 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 blah. But it's not always that way with your garden variety, like Aetna, United Plans, or whatever. They charge a set premium, and that's that's it. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, and they don't know what percentage of that is actually going to fund the claims or what percentage of that is going to fund the drugs, any of that. They don't get any of that information. It's all just kind of on faith that they're doing the right thing and doing the right thing by people and paying out things versus an employer working with someone and kind of paying the costs, the claims themselves and the cost of the drugs themselves to a certain percentage and stuff for a certain amount that they charge an employee for that coverage. So, but that's something too, that's like a lot of inside baseball that people don't realize, but with this push to these high deductible plans and stuff, it just puts more pressure on the employee or on the person with those plans to pay up first 
but it's impossible to price. Like, you know, um, you look at a house repair or you look at a car repair. There's usually a certain estimate, right, for like mm-hmm. a front-end damage or, you know, a hole in your roof. You know a ballpark. Not for any of these services because it's all behind the door, closed contract, sealed and delivered, right? Even with like Medicaid to a certain degree. Like you don't know how much they're actually charging for like an MRI. Mm-hmm. Like of the wrist even let's just do like something stupid right so like one facility up the road could charge 400 the hospital could charge 12 like is there any difference in the machines maybe not right yeah um but it's all because you know that's what they feel like the going rate is there's no parity and there's no like rate card or estimate card like there is for other services so that's what makes all of this so hard to understand and so hard to unravel. And especially like with us with oxygen, like that was a huge eye opener of how much like even BS is in like Medicare and Medicaid. Because if you're a younger patient like I am, right, you want something that's like lighter and easier to carry and is going to keep you active for longer. Mm-hmm. But you also want something that's if you have a progressive disease that's that's going to kind of grow with you and going to have a higher layer flow, the more oxygen you need to start to use. Unfortunately, the machines are not designed that way. And even if you find one that says, we'll say, use less than half the power of the one that you have, it's not like a splint or a cast where you can just go up the road to a medical supplier and say, I want you to order that for me. If it's not on their approved list of vendors or whatever, or it's not what they're they're getting for their Medicare or Medicaid patients, like you can't get it. Right. Which is totally stupid. Like, you know, so there's and that's just one example of a of a piece of equipment, right? And if you would try to do that and go outside the system and buy that outright, it will cost you anywhere from Probably uh, eighteen fifty for a used one to like four or five grand for a completely like new machine. And who has that kind of money? Right. I mean, especially if you're on Medicaid right. or Medicare. I always used to wonder, well, why don't you let me just buy this and keep it? But then it made sense as to why they rent. Um, you know, if your oxygen continues to go up, you may need to graduate machines, which ended up happening to me. But it seems silly and stupid for me, too, to be like, you know, why do I have to pay $150 a month on my deductible to rent this shit from somebody? Like, why can't it just be like a cast or splint or something that I pay a finite cost and they give it to me for the life of it? Right. It's like renting your cable box. Right. (laughs) You know, so, you know, there's a lot of this kind of like behind that universal is not going to is not really going to solve because you're going to get all these dickering from these companies of what the market value of their equipment is or mm-hmm. what the value of their service is, and they're never going to come to an agreement. And they're always going to want the highest price. So, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's almost like a, a combination of, of socialized or universal for certain services like, I don't know, hospitalizations, maybe uh, ER visits, stuff like that. But then there's going to have to be a certain amount of flexibility for different things, too. It's really complex. I used to think, too, that that just moving to a single payer is going to fix it all. Um, but And I don't think that anymore, having worked on the inside. But I definitely see it as a better solution, maybe. Right. Um, because these insurance companies, you know, they're not sharing the wealth. Right. Uh, when when they save money, that is not going back to the company that saved them that money, even a percentage. It's not going to their ground floor people who are taking the calls every day, unraveling these messes to save them money. It's going into executive pockets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not like... I would be less mad if we knew that, like, okay, you know, a percentage of that 
like they had to cap executive bonuses on that if they had some kind of law, you know, to, to put a cap on that or that they passed some kind of law that they had to share a certain percentage of the savings, pass it along to the to subscribers and to, you know, the employers. Then I would be a little bit more willing to keep things status quo. There's definitely got to be a change because this shit is just going to run aground. Right, but and like, it's just been trending upwards for years and years and years, like long before the Affordable Care Act. Like, that's the reason that we had the Affordable Care Act in the first right. place. It was already fucked up. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's such a, you know, it's such a complex thing. And it that's a kind of stuff, too, that kind of, I ruminate on just because of my experiences over time, both, you know, personal and professional that like I get into it at a level that like most people don't, don't get into it at. But like some of that is just like, I don't know. I wish I had a good solution. Yeah. I think we all do. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, obviously though, as much as people bitch Canada and a few of these other countries, yeah, their system isn't perfect. You hear stories about, problems but they still in effect are doing something relatively right right um because their service seems to rank a lot higher and cost less than what it's costing us right so there's got to be a happy medium somewhere yeah somewhere but you have to let go of you have to find some way to like rein in these insurance companies and their power which in the current climate of Washington is going to be very tough because it's a very yeah. hard hobby to bust but yeah got no. anyone for time <laughs> I forget what the name of the book was I want to say it was America's Bitter Pill it might have been a different book um but some guy who had wrote a lot about the insurance um industry like for the New York Times then was going to do a book about it and then it turned out that he had an aortic aneurysm and like so he yeah. wound up being in the healthcare system and then getting like one day in the mail, 40 different bills came, you know, or like 40 different pieces of paper. And so he actually already had a, uh, a meeting set up with the CEO of his health insurance company just to like interview him for the book. So he like brought (laughs) the papers with him and was like, can you make any sense of this? And the guy was like, no, none of this makes sense. I don't know. And wow. so in, I did, I actually didn't wind up finishing the book cause it was kind of boring, but um, <laughs> I heard interviews with the author and he's, I heard him say several times that he actually wound up feeling not entirely, but at least to some extent, a little bit, it feels like a little bit bad for the insurance companies because like while the insurance companies are definitely p- playing a part in the fuckery that is our healthcare system, um, like what he found was that it was really like the medical device and pharmaceutical companies that were driving up costs. I don't know if I believe that, but that was like an interesting perspective to hear. That you know, there's a little kernel of truth in that. Yeah. Um, especially in transplant world, because you get all of these drugs that are very costly and expensive, and they're on the specialty tiers. Right. Um, which is a, like the highest copays on most plans. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also like the percentage of what the employer pays on those is actually quite high. And some of these metrics and stuff, like I was a little bit more privy to because of the sector I worked in. Like I could see all the data at, like, at, and I saw claims process from day to day. I saw the charges with the discounts where, you know, a lot of this stuff that, the average consumer doesn't doesn't actually see. Mm-hmm. So there is some truth to that, but on the same token, <laughs> the the majority and there's people on the inside that are that are good, but j- just like there's people on the inside of pharma that are good too and are trying yeah. to you know, do good. So I mean, I get his point with that, and to a certain extent, yeah, they're human industry, but I can't feel sorry for <laughs> these executives who also push these mergers to get Mm -hmm. you know people less choice and less options or you know throw a fit and then decide that they don't want to be part of the ACA anymore because their reimbursements are down um, because they're having to like carry people who are actually sick 
Uh, God forbid, you know, <laughs> which is the biggest bullshit. Right. Their executive bonus goes down, you know, um, you know, $6,000 a year. Like, I'm, you know, you make too much already. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sorry. You're not going to get sympathy from me on that, especially when you're not sharing those bonuses with the people who are doing the lion's share of the work. Right. Okay. As far as like really unraveling messes, making sure that those claims are getting paid, that they're getting examined, uh, uh, you know, the medical examiners, the claims processors, all those people, you know, the frontline agents who are taking all these angry calls, you know, none of them are seeing those bonuses. Yeah. Which is so true of every customer service right. ever. <laughs> and I know it's the whole flows downhill philosophy, but, you know. There's your trickle down economics for you. Right. You know, like, how do you expect people to feel sorry if you're still making hand over fist and everybody else is, is you know, being bled dry? Like, yeah. come on. So, you know, a lot of that, yeah, I, I can see in part, but I don't wholly agree with either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. <laughs> well, this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening to In Sickness and In Health. Find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. <laughs> <laughs>